there, I'm Adam Rissman, and welcome to another episode of Inside Intercom. As anyone who works in technology or startups knows, there's no such thing as an easy or one-size-fits-all answer to the big question, how do you grow a company? But that doesn't mean we can't learn a great deal from the successes and failures of those who've gone through high-growth periods before us. This week's guest, Alad Gill, has seen hypergrowth from all angles. As a PM at Google, he watched the company go from 1,500 to 15,000 employees. In 2009, Twitter acquired a startup, Mixer Labs, appointed him vice president of corporate strategy, and he played a key role there of watching the company go from 90 to 1,500. He's also co-founded Color Genomics and invested in and been an advisor to companies like Airbnb, Coinbase, Instacart, Square, Stripe, and more. Throughout all these experiences with growing companies, Elad's seen founders ask the same questions and come across the same hurdles over and over and over again. So to help codify his own learnings and what he believes to be the most repeatable patterns, he's got a new book, The High Growth Handbook, and it's available Tuesday, July 17th on Stripe Press. One thing I really love about the book is it's not just Elad's point of view. He interviews and leverages the opinions of well-known founders and investors, including Sam Altman, Mark Andreessen, Aaron Levy, and more. I think the only good generic startup advice is that there's no good generic startup advice. And so I do think that they brought complementary views or views that were just at odds, and sometimes that was very healthy. My chat with Alad, we not only dive into the many themes his new book covers, but we also get into the ins and outs of mergers and acquisitions as a tool for growth. That was Microsoft's strategies in the 90s with Office as a suite. That was actually Google's strategy. If you look at things like Android or Chrome or other products. And we talk about why the evolution of company culture is a necessary part of growth, too. Culture is the set of relationships that everybody at the company have to each other and the unwritten set of rules that they live by. And just like any other set of relationships, they're going to evolve over time and things are going to change. If you like what you hear from a lot, be sure to pick up a copy of his high growth handbook on July 17th. And for more growth insights from the Intercom team, plus folks who've helped grow companies like Uber, Duolingo, Slack, and more, you can get our latest free book on the topic at intercom.com forward slash books. Lastly, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes or give us a follow on Spotify. Now, let's hop in the studio where I'm joined by Alad Gill. You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. Alad, welcome to Inside Intercom. Ah, thanks for having me. Yeah, so first of all, congratulations on the High Growth Handbook. Super excited to hear all about it and learn a little bit more about what we can find inside. For starters, though, I mean, you've seen hypergrowth from a ton of angles, be it at Google, your time at Twitter, being a founder, a color, an angel investor, all sorts of things. So what are a few of the key points in your career that sort of led you to to this point where you've been writing about all this stuff? Oh, uh, sure, yeah. I mean, uh, to your point, basically... My career has been split between operating and investing. Mm-hmm. And on the operating side, I joined Google when it was around 1,500, 2,000 people. Yeah. And then I left around three and a half years later when it was 15,000 people. So it, <laughs> it uh, 10x or so um, over the course of just three and a half years. And then I started a company that Twitter bought when Twitter was about 90 people. Mm-hmm. And then I left two and a half years later when it was 1,500, stuck around for another year as an advisor. So really saw um, extreme growth in both of those cases. And then lastly, I've invested in a lot of companies like Airbnb, Coinbase, Instacart, Stripe, Square, Pinterest, Zenefits, Gusto, Wish, et cetera, and have uh, watched as some of those companies have scaled pretty dramatically. And so you start to see these common patterns in terms of uh, how things tend to evolve. 
Mm-hmm. Was that the origin really of putting all this on paper, just sort of telling those same stories or sharing those same warning signs over and over? Yeah, basically what I found was that founders of breakout companies, just like founders of early stage companies, tend to ask more or less the same sets of questions. Obviously, each startup is unique and the context of a startup matters a lot. But you, you tended to have the same questions around, I've never hired a general uh, counsel. How do I hire a new type of exec that I've, I don't know the function about? Or how do I buy a company for the first time? Or how do I internationalize for the first time? And so there's very common questions. And so the purpose of this book, this high growth handbook, was really meant to codify uh, some of those learnings that I've seen across different companies. Yeah. And so the book is being published by Stripe Press. How did that partnership come about? It was a little bit ad hoc. I think Stripe had been thinking for a while about either publishing books or reissuing books that they're very excited about. And so it really started as a conversation with uh, John Collison, one of the founders mm-hmm. of Stripe. And I mentioned that I've been working on this book and I was originally going to launch it as a website. And he got excited about it being one of the first books that Stripe would launch as an imprint. That's awesome. So who exactly are you speaking to through the book? And maybe what are you hoping they might do or consider differently as a result of all the learnings you're sharing? I think fundamentally, uh, there's three audiences that I was hoping to reach. Uh, One was founders. So I think, you know, every founding story is always filled with challenges and and a lot of effort. And so the hope is to try and make life easier for founders and um, people starting these companies that are working. Second is really for uh, employees. And so I think like a lot of times when you're going through hypergrowth, especially for the first time, it's very chaotic and it's very uncertain. And you have no idea what the people in the management team are really thinking Mm -hmm. about. And so... When I was at Google, for example, I joined as sort of a middle layer person, not as sort of an executive. And every six months there was a reorg and my peers were getting promoted like crazy. And there was always a question of, well, what about me and what's going to happen to me and all the rest of it? And then when I sold my first company to Twitter, I was an executive there, but it was also a very different story from the perspective of it. I've already seen hypergrowth before. And so I wasn't intimidated by it. And I was just like, you know what? Things are going to be messy and ugly and it's fine. Like I know it'll work out in the end because the company's working really well. And so don't worry about it. Um, so second audience is employees. And then third audience is really just sort of the broader community of people who are interested in technology. So it could be business people in other fields. It could be investors or others. Yeah, I, I love the, the second audience there. That's something that as I went through the book, I found really enlightening because be it through you close out with decisions around future funding, you open with how the role of a CEO changes, when you might bring on a COO, all sorts of stuff like that, that, you know, we that are sort of in the moment there as, as an IC, for instance, we hear about at an all hands after the fact, but we get very little about what that decision making process is like. And so I thought that that was something that was at least very enlightening for me as I went through the book. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, that's great. Yeah, that, that's part of the intention. And originally I was thinking, should each chapter have sort of the employee's view of what just happened? Mm-hmm. And I decided in the end not to do it. But I do think that, um, you know, people assume a lot about how savvy their executive team is around certain things. And often people are just figuring this stuff out. And um, just trying to do their best. And I think one of my big takeaways, having gone through Google and then Twitter, is to really give the leadership team of a company the benefit of the doubt. Like in general, people are trying to do the right thing. And, you know, sometimes they do and sometimes they, they kind of screw it up. But that's just the nature of something that's changing so rapidly. Right. And there are very few CEOs who aren't first time CEOs as well. <laughs> yeah, especially today. It's interesting how that's evolved because... Up until Facebook, you'd always hire in the professional CEO mm-hmm. to run the company. And then obviously with Facebook, Cheryl came in as COO. And that shifted the whole conversation around founders continuing to run the companies and COOs coming on board. And I think that's been a 90% good trend, but there's been 10% of the cases where the founders really shouldn't be running the company anymore and they don't have the self-awareness to realize it. And so, yeah. you know, I do think I, I do think uh, it's been a net positive, though. What are some of those more, I guess, 
healthy patterns or things to look for when a CEO is looking to make that complimentary hire like a COO? Yeah, I think for COO, often the quite well, I, th- I think the first question is, do you want to stay on a CEO or not? And uh, Reed Hoffman has a really great post about this in terms of his own decision of not being CEO at LinkedIn and how did he find somebody he, who he viewed as almost like a late founder. I similarly stepped down from color, uh, the company I started about four years in. And I was going to ask if you were sort of speaking to your past self when you were writing that chapter of the book. In a some little ways. bit. I mean, I think ultimately, you know, Ottman was the right person to sort of take the company to the next level. But I think that, you know, when looking for a COO, a lot of the questions are, well, do you really want a COO or do you want to sort of distribute the role across a few people? Because, you know, you're really sort of centralizing a set of functions or a yeah. set of responsibilities, but you can also do it in a more distributed way. Um, second is, what are you actually looking to offload and why? And often I think founders who become CEOs of scaling companies, the place where they start to burn out is if they're consistently doing the things that they hate doing. And so if you really hate sitting through a dozen sales comp meetings, maybe you should find somebody who can really fulfill that role. And so part of the, the, the equation of a COO or the, the calculus of a COO is to ask, what do I want them to be doing? And then there's all sorts of questions around culture fit, complementarity, and working styles. And ultimately, how do you start thinking about working together and partnering with that person as well as your broader executive team as CEO? So I do think those are some of the main questions you would ask yourself. So speaking of asking questions, you not only wrote most of this book, but you actually interviewed a slew of people that our listeners would be very familiar with, Mark Andreessen, Sam Altman, Claire Hughes Johnson of Stripe, about their perspectives on the various things you tackle in the book. Why did you feel like it was so important to get that outside perspective, despite the fact that you've seen this from so many angles? I think ultimately I wanted people who had either built things at scale or been involved with a lot of companies that had to uh, deal with scale as they broke out from a product market fit perspective. And in some cases, these people had different viewpoints from what I have. Like they said the opposite of what my book said. And I thought that was very valuable because, again, uh, I think the only good generic startup advice is that there's no good generic startup (laughs) advice. And so I do think that they brought complementary views or views that were just at odds. And sometimes that was very healthy. And then I think some of them also just had areas of expertise that I didn't, you know, in terms of some of the functions that they were responsible for, the type of markets they were in. And so I think that outside experience just helped either reinforce certain points that I agreed with or to provide counter perspectives, which I think is important. What are some of those examples of places where they maybe challenged your point of view that really stick out from the process? I think one example is the conversation I had with Naval, uh, who I think is one of the smartest people in Silicon Valley, Naval Ravikant, who started AngelList, and he started one of the first angel funds, and he started uh, one of the first crypto funds. So he's sort of been ahead of every single wave. And in general, um, AngelList has been run as a more distributed and decentralized organization than what um, I'm used to. And so he had a very different perspective, in part based on his crypto experiences, in part from AngelList in terms of how you think about decentralizing teams and other aspects that I hadn't thought about as deeply. So you mentioned that you joined Google, 1,500 people, 15,000 when you left. Twitter, 90 people, and you got there, 1,500 when you left. That means that every like six months to a year, basically feels like a different company. I've been at Intercom now for about three years, uh, a little over 100 people when I joined, 550 now. So I've I've certainly have experienced that a little bit. Um, In the book, though, you say that work structure is really an exercise in pragmatism. Mm-hmm. Can you expand on that? What, what do you mean and what that challenge is like? Sure, totally. Uh, so I think to your point, if your company is scaling incredibly rapidly, like if it's tripling every year, mm-hmm. or if it's, if it's growing headcount at an enormous rate, 
then every six to 12 months, you literally are at a different company because most of the people are new. Yeah. The processes are probably new. The scale at which you're operating is new, which means the way you communicate is different. And so you're literally at a different company, at a different scale with different people. And so you have to adapt to that. And one way that you end up adapting to that is you end up with reorgs pretty frequently. And initially, those reorgs will be at the executive level. And then as certain executive leaders settle down, the reorgs start to shift into the functional divisions because suddenly you know who the leadership team is, Mm -hmm. but you're starting a new division for some international thing or a new product or whatever it may be. And then you have to sort of shift how product and engineering and sales are aligned against those things. So you start to see these shifts in organizational structure. Now, ultimately, when you're trying to decide who's going to run what, there's basically two or three core considerations that you really need to keep in mind. The first one is, where do you want tie-breaking to happen? Mm -hmm. In other words, if you have an engineering team and a design team and a product team, they're going to disagree about all sorts of stuff. And that's a very natural tension, right? That should happen. Mm -hmm. If they all agree, then you wouldn't really have... There is such thing as healthy tension (laughs) in product teams. Yeah, exactly. So um, if taken too far is bad. If, If it's a healthy tension, it's great. And so then you have to start to ask, well... How do I want decisions to be made, for example, between those three orgs, or maybe marketing and product and design would be another example. And if I want product and design to sort things out between themselves and not have that be escalated to the CEO very much, then I probably want both of those functions to report into one person. So one aspect of it is, where do you want tiebreaking to happen? The other more pragmatic aspect is to realize that ultimately there's no single correct org structure. There's a few trade-offs. So for example, do you have a COO or not? What functions does your COO own or what functions does your CFO own or uh, the like? And so, for example, at Twitter, the general counsel at the time, Alexander McGivory, at different times owned M&A. He owned trust and safety. He owned legal. He owned a variety of different areas. And one of the reasons he picked those areas up was he was a talented executive who could manage teams. He didn't have the functional expertise. But while we hired in somebody to take over one of these functions, he was the person who was responsible for it, for example. And that was truly just a pragmatic call of who has bandwidth on the team to do this. So I think often what you'll find is uh, when a reorg happens, it's happening because somebody has a bandwidth to help with something or something suddenly becomes very important. And so somebody gets assigned to it. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to stay that way forever. And it doesn't mean that it's the long-term right choice, but it may just be the pragmatic short-term right choice. What's your take on how to communicate those things to the wider team? Because I think it's very easy for the impetus behind some of these to get lost in translation. It's a good question because sometimes you want to communicate that somebody's interim, for example, and just make that very explicit. Hey, we needed to launch in this new market, and therefore this person is going to own it for a while until we find somebody. Sometimes you don't want to do that either because that person may eventually convert to be the long-term person, and it's part of the conversation with them of you may or may not pick Mm -hmm. it up. But sometimes it may also be very disempowering for that executive because if they're just the interim placeholder person, Maybe people don't need to listen to them as much, or maybe they shouldn't be making certain hires. And so it can create a much harder role for that individual. So I think the key is basically trying to sort out that fine balance of being as transparent as possible, but also realizing that even within the decisions that are being made, like that there's some flexibility and there's some uncertainty. So maybe that salesperson who's opening up Latin America has been told, if you do well, you'll keep it. If you don't do well, it'll go to somebody else and that's okay. Mm -hmm. But you may not want to communicate to the whole company that this person's on the line for that. So when you know these things inevitably are going to change again uh, more and more frequently, how do you measure the success of a reorg like this? What does success look like? I think it's a few things. Uh, One is the degree to which people churn out. Mm -hmm. So are people leaving the company? Are they unhappy? You can you know, measure employee unhappiness in a variety or happiness uh, in a variety (laughs) of ways. 
So uh, part of it is just how do people react to it. I think, honestly, a lot of the success of a reorg is ultimately driven by how quickly you do it. So I think one of the mistakes people make sometimes when they do reorgs is they take a long time to do them. They pre-announce them and say, hey, over the next three weeks, mm -hmm. we're making changes. And there's sometimes reasons to do that. But in general, you want to narrow the window of time down to as short of a window as possible. So if you can do a reorg in 24 hours, you should do it in 24 hours because the biggest thing that happens is people get really spun up around uncertainty for themselves. Mm -hmm. Who's going to be my boss? What does it mean? Am I going to like her or not? Like, what's going to happen to me? And so this sort of voice of me, me, me starts to become very loud when there's uncertainty. And it's understandable why people would be worried about those things. And so I think really what you want to do is sort of take away that uncertainty as quickly as you can. And that's why you want to do a reorg quickly. You want to know who's going to report to who. And you want to be able to explain those implications to people quite rapidly. One thing that feeds into this is, particularly when you're starting to scale up, is new disciplines come into the mix, be it communications, maybe that didn't exist before, marketing, once you've moved beyond the original product team, people ops. From your experience, is there any, whether it's those or other examples, that you think companies maybe wait too long to get to? There's a handful. I think it was Mark Andreessen in the book who pointed out, for example, that people tend to wait too long to hire an HR person. Mm -hmm. And that's that's one example of a crucial function. If you're very focused on regulatory and compliance as a company, uh, you probably want to hire somebody for that role quite early relative to other companies. I think Coinbase had, I can't remember if it was their GC or a key compliance person within their first five or 10 hires, so they added somebody quite early. So I do think that it, it's a little bit contextual. Like for some companies, it's really important to add certain people that wouldn't be important for others. And then I think there's common threads like HR that yeah. people probably add a little bit too late in most cases. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with Intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode 1 is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. It's inevitable that... All businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service. And it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right? And see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. Going back to your Twitter days, I believe your last title there was VP of Corporate Strategy. Is that right? Yeah. I believe I've seen you say elsewhere that that encompassed a lot of business operations roles. Is that true? Yeah, we basically were, uh, it depends a little bit on how you define BizOps, but yeah, we effectively functioned in part is a strategic sort of consulting arm internally. Mm -hmm. And then as part, there were certain operational things that we owned too. Yeah, so you know, in our case, 
business operations in a lot of ways will almost be an incubator for new functions in the business. So I'm curious, like, were there new wings of, of Twitter that you were able to incubate and bring on there and implement? Yeah, there's a few different areas that I ended up working on across the company. And uh, some of them were in concert with this guy, Ali Rogani, who ended up becoming COO, and then he now runs YC Continuities Fund. In some cases, it was just my team that was doing it. Um, those included things like certain aspects of internationalization, such as the Japan market. So I spent some time on that. I spent some time, or uh, my team spent some time working with a recruiting team, really scaling up and splitting out roles within recruiting so recruiting could scale. Uh, the M&A team worked for me for a while, mm -hmm. so Corp Dev, so buying different companies. Yep. So we bought a few dozen companies, I think, while that team reported to me, something in that order of magnitude. I also was involved with early sort of uh, emphasis on certain types of growth models and growth funnels and things like that and sort of institutionalizing some of those early things. So it, it did, uh, in some cases, some of these things were pre-existing and we just yeah. helped sort of turbocharge them. And in some cases, we sort of helped get some things up and running. M&A is another theme that I think comes up a little bit in the book especially when we look back towards your time at Google. And I think Mark Andreessen mentions this in his passage of the book as well, that people often forget a lot of the products that Google has, for instance, like mobile maps, like you worked on that started as acquisitions, Android obviously being the biggest one. What's your take on if and when a company should consider that as its next logical step in growth? Yeah, I think the vast majority of companies that are worth a few billion dollars or more are buying too few companies today. And I'm actually surprised at the degree to which they're not buying things. Mm -hmm. And you can buy things for talent purposes. So I think for a period of time when the M&A team worked for me at Twitter, something on the order of 20 or 30% of all new engineering hires were coming through M&A for some wow. period of time. Now, most of those were reasonably inexpensive acquisitions where, you know, you're not paying that much of a premium versus somebody walking in off the street. But in some cases, they, were, they filled meaningful product holes or product teams. I think one of the biggest shifts that people have to mentally make as founders over time is every, many founders today, especially if they're technical, start off being very product-centric. Mm -hmm. And so they think that the primary success of their company is driven by coming up with great products, which is true very early on and often true late. But what they don't necessarily realize as strongly is at some point they shift from being a product-only company to a company that's with product and distribution. Mm -hmm. And so really what they should be doing is taking advantage of the fact that they have distribution that other people don't, and they can either buy or build companies or products and then push them down that distribution channel. And so that was Microsoft's strategies mm -hmm. in the 90s yep. with Office as a suite. Uh, that was actually Google's strategy. If you look at things like Android or Chrome or other products, that was to some extent Facebook's strategy. Um, that was definitely Oracle's strategy. And so a lot of the biggest companies, Cisco did this ad nauseum. It still does it. So a lot of the best companies have done this. And I think it's for some reason taken a little bit longer for many, not all, but many companies in today's era to do that. Um, Coinbase is a good example where they're actually – uh, from all the tweets that you see from the company, they're actually buying quite aggressively. Yeah. And I think it's their smart strategy where they're saying, we have this great platform, let's buy things and sort of distribute them. So you actually came into Twitter this way through acquisition. So I'm curious from the flip side, what was it that sticks with you the most from when you and your team were being integrated into Twitter from like a cultural perspective, maybe what went smoothly, what was a little more rough around the edges? How do you advise the companies you, you work with on that to make sure that it's smooth for all parties? Yeah, I think um, the acquisition of Mixer Labs, the company that I ran at the time by Twitter, was really a seminal moment for me mm -hmm. uh, personally. I thought, you know, Twitter was an amazing platform by which you could communicate with, you know, hundreds of millions of people globally. It had an, an enormous and amazing developer community. And it was just, you know, one of those companies that you're lucky to be a part of. I think fundamentally the places where companies tend to screw things up is sort of in three core areas. Number one is 
the integration itself. So how do you actually onboard the people that yeah. you're buying? What are their roles going to be? But also making sure that people get out of the way. And so often when you buy something, the reason you bought it is there was an internal team that was nascent or small or semi-existent, or maybe there's half an engineer. It could be a variety of things. And that internal team thinks that they own an area and suddenly you buy a bunch of people to do it. Mm -hmm. And you need to be very explicit with that internal team that they need to get out of the way. So that's one place where people tend to screw it up. The second place where they screw it up is overthinking the degree to which things need to be integrated early. And so if you look at some of Google's best acquisitions, in some cases, there were things that were integrated indirectly immediately. And in some cases, it was things like Android, where they really let it run as an independent part of the company. They let them do their mm -hmm. own hiring. You saw that similarly for a while, at least, with Facebook and WhatsApp or Facebook and Instagram in terms of giving them more leeway yeah. than other internal groups. And so I think too many companies overthink the degree to which technical integration needs to happen. And they'll force people to pour it over to their stack. And often what they should be doing is just distributing the existing thing and then having a longer-term roadmap to port it. And maybe it takes two years, and that's okay. You know, like you don't need to freeze everything and then port. And so I think that's another common mistake is just overthinking the technical integration. Yeah, definitely, definitely. The last place or the third place where people tend to screw things up is the way that they communicate things internally to their own team around the acquisition. Interesting. So I think sometimes people pre-announce the size of the acquisition or um, how much the founders may make off of it <laughs> or other things that honestly just isn't anybody's business except yeah. for the people being acquired. And so I think that's the other piece that needs to sometimes be run better is how do you communicate internally? What are the interview loops that you run for people and how do you really manage it internally? Yeah, definitely. So be it M&A, be it reorgs, all this kind of plays into a central theme that permeates its way through your book as well. And that's the big halo word of culture. What's like a healthy way that culture should evolve when you're in hyper growth? Because I, I think you kind of have to choose almost which hills to die on in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's a great point. I think people view culture as too static of a thing when really it's evolving. And in some sense, culture is the set of relationships that everybody at the company have to each other and the unwritten set of rules that they live by. And just like any other set of relationships, they're going to evolve over time and things are going to change. And the key question is, what are the handful of things that you really care about that you want everybody to continue to embody in the context of their work uh, versus, hey, we're never going to change the fact that, you know, uh, Everybody needs to be funny or God knows what <laughs> trait um, is selected for. So I think fundamentally culture is something that evolves and you should be very explicit with everybody that it's going to evolve, it's going to change, just like every other aspect of the company. And here are the two or three things that we really care about. And these are the things that we want to maintain as a consistent thread throughout the life of the company. So then one thing that I think is, is constantly a struggle, particularly for leadership, is in a lot of ways when you're growing quickly, you need to hire quickly. And occasionally you may not be able to find at least quickly the person that's the perfect fit for you. And I know if you make one hire that's slightly off, maybe it's not the end of the world, but that sort of becomes the bridge for the expectation for the next hire, the next hire until things break down horribly. So what's your advice to someone that's trying to juggle urgency versus culture fit? I would just wait and find the right person and it's going to be awful and painful, but you find out later that if you hire somebody who, who, uh, comes in and is overly argumentative or creates issues within the, within the organization, it cascades and it doesn't just impact one person, it impacts many people. And sometimes it creates a bad work environment or, or other issues. So I think, unfortunately, the answer is typically, the correct answer is usually just wait. Yeah. And people uh, fail in that temptation too frequently. More and more, a lot of these companies are 
co-located between different countries. We're an example. We have home bases in San Francisco and Ireland, not to mention offices in London, Sydney now, Chicago. How much of that culture needs to be shared by location and what can be unique to those places where things are quite frankly different? Yeah, it's a great point. I think each location is going to have its own characteristics and its own quirks, and that's great. And the key thing is, again, what are the two or three things that you really care about that you want to make sure that everybody shares in? And there's different ways to tactically do that. So, for example, if you're setting up a new office, you want to send one or more people from the existing office Mm -hmm. who've been there for a long time who can really help sort of almost transplant it. It's almost like a culture that you use to, you know, make yogurt. You know, you want to you want to bring over (laughs) the original sort of culture and, you know, create the new batch. Yep, that's sort of been our our pattern with we launched our sales team in Dublin. Our first couple sales hires from over here went there for a year, helped get that off the ground. Our Chicago office came from both. We had support manager from Dublin move over there as well as a support manager from San Francisco to bring both pieces to the puzzle into the place in the middle. So um, certainly something we've seen a lot of success with. We've talked a lot about the challenges of getting big, but it's it's not all bad. So <laughs> what are some things that people should be really excited about and look forward to and embrace when they get into this hyper growth? Yeah, stage? and I think it's, 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 to your point, largely good. And so we're sort of dwelling on the hard stuff because... Yep. <laughs> You know, that's the stuff that's that what people are go, asking uh, about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It tends to go under discussed too, because mm-hmm. every article is, isn't everything working great? You know, I think ultimately, I'll, I'll give two views on it. One view is there's only going to be so many times in your life that you're going to be part of something that is truly impactful to millions or tens or hundreds of millions of people around the world. And if you're at one of these breakout companies, you're working on a product or an area that fundamentally is transformative in one way or the other. So one is just the impact that you're having is probably immense because things wouldn't be growing as fast as they were if not. Mm-hmm. And so you should really savor the fact that you're really changing the way people are doing something. And that's really important. I think the second piece is that from a career perspective for employees, joining a company that's growing rapidly is the best way to have an accelerated career. Mm-hmm. And that's because if you join early enough or even if you join late, you end up building bridges to the founders or the executive team of the forums. And then you're going to be given all sorts of opportunities because people will trust you. And suddenly they'll say, hey, we have to open our new office in London. Who wants to go? Yeah. Or, hey, we need to start a new product. Who can jump in? And so you start to get these outsized opportunities that normally you wouldn't get in your career. And you can get a lot more responsibility than you could in any other context. Um, there's sort of a macro version of this, which is people who graduate into recessions tend to have dramatically lower earning power and career paths than people who graduate into periods of expansion. It's truly just the macroeconomic, when did you graduate? Yep. <laughs> and there's a startup version of that, which is what's the startup you join? And if, it, if you join one that's lifting off, you're going to probably have a much better career than if you join one that doesn't. Mm-hmm. And so I think you should really savor and accept that. And that's part of just uh, going with the flow and saying, you know what, it's going to be chaotic and all sorts of things will happen and it's okay. This is a really unique moment. From a founder perspective, it's so rare to sort of catch lightning in a bottle that you should really just savor the fact that you're doing something that one of only a very small number of people will ever be able to do in their life. You know, it's truly a fraction of a percent of people ever get to start a breakout company. And so you should really savor it despite all the hard moments and, you know, all the issues that are inevitable yeah. uh, for anything that grows. So speaking maybe to the the founders or the leaders out there who are in the shoes that you found yourself in previously, what are some ways to give the people on your team those little dopamine hits and reminders about where they are and, and the opportunity they have? I think it depends a little bit on the type of company that you're at. 
I think the consistent thread is the the points that I mentioned, and I think it's worth reiterating them. Like we all have a unique opportunity here, and we're all going to do extremely well in ways that most people will never have a chance to do so. And I think in general in Silicon Valley, the sort of latest generation of people seem to have forgotten that. I think there's almost like this creeping cynicism when I think really we should refocus on optimism and what can we accomplish collectively together because I think fundamentally technology is a positive, an extremely positive force for good and I think people forget sight of that. But I think it's really just reemphasizing to people that they're in a unique moment, they're in a unique spot, they can do things nobody else can do or very few other people have the opportunity to do and it's gonna be incredibly rewarding um, both in terms of the impact they have as well as financially. I think if you're working on something that's focused on communication or health or other things, and you can also point to the direct human impact mm -hmm. of some of the things that you're doing. And so I think you can just show tangible examples of how you've changed people's lives. And I think that's very powerful. That's great. Elad, thank you so much for joining us today. The book is The High Growth Handbook. I've got an advanced copy of it. I can't recommend it enough. What I really love about it is you don't necessarily have to read it cover to cover. You can almost use it as an encyclopedic resource when the problems that we've all talked about arise. Uh, so where can our listeners go to get the book and just keep up with the latest that's going on with you? Sure. Uh, they can get the book either on Amazon or they can go to growth.aladgill.com. I'm also on Twitter as at Aladgill. Great. Thanks again for coming in. And uh, we'll thanks, catch for you next time. thanks so much for having me on. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.